Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking at chapter 8, starting in verse 35, and going to chapter 9 and verse 1. So Mark 8:35 to 9:1. Brothers and sisters, please then hear with me the reading of God's holy word. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now at the outset of this sermon series in Mark, I said if we had a pinpoint, a purpose of Mark's writing, we might say that there are two which are this, first, understanding who God is or who Jesus is, right? The the Son of God and the Messiah. And then also understanding what discipleship involves. And Mark kind of neatly divides this in Mark 8.27 with that confession by Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's at that point that Mark then kind of divides and separates That first half, which dealt with understanding who Jesus is, with the second half, which now entails understanding what discipleship is. And we've seen this, right? Right after Peter's confession, Jesus right away goes into what He as Messiah must suffer. But He does so with the implication of telling them that if you follow Me, this too is what you must likewise suffer. Remember last week then we've seen as Jesus spoke not only to the disciples, but to the crowd. He actually explicitly comes out then and says, this is what discipleship entails. Right? It means denying yourself. It means taking up your cross. And it means following after Me even unto death. And now in our text today, Jesus continues along, picking up where we left off in verse 34. And now what He does for us is He provides reasons why we must be willing to lay down our lives if we wish to be His disciples. And He does this because He knows that there will come a time for all of those whom He is speaking to here right, will they, where they will have the opportunity to either confess Christ before men or deny Christ before men. And so what he is doing is persuading them of the importance, right, of not turning around, backing away, tucking their tails, running and hiding. But rather he's persuading them 
of the importance of confessing who He is by reminding them of the great reward that awaits all who willingly will give up their lives for Him and for His honor and for His glory. And yet we have to ask, why does Jesus have to persuade men of this? It's because giving up one's life is no easy matter, is it? It's no trivial matter. We can all attest to that, can't we? Right? By nature, human beings see their earthly lives as most precious to them. And nobody wants to part with them. Right? Nobody wants to just give up their life. But Jesus' message in our text today is this. That to be my disciple means giving up your life now and not clinging to it. Because any unwillingness to part with your life now, to part with your natural life, means a loss for all of you of something of far greater value than your natural life. And that thing that is of far greater value that Jesus speaks about here is your soul. Your soul. And so today we want to ask as we look at these five verses, how does one lose their soul? Or how do you forfeit your soul? And how might we as, as believers, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, guard against this? And so we're going to look at this under three points this morning. And our first point that we're going to start with to unpack this is this, that you forfeit your soul when you try to save your own life. You forfeit your soul when you try to save your own life. In verse 35, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Here we see right away, Jesus narrows down exactly what we ought to be ready to lose our lives for. It's not everything. It's not just anything. It is only two things He says, right? He says, for His name and for the Gospel. Right? There are only two things. There are two things that every Christian must be willing to lay down their life for. That is, the name of Christ and the Gospel. Right? Which means then you don't save your life if you if you die as a criminal trying to rob a bank and you get into a shootout with the police, right? This is what Peter actually says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. He says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But then he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Right? So those who live wickedly and die as such they have no claim to eternal life because they lost their life. But what Jesus is saying to this crowd and His disciples and all those who are desiring to follow Him is that following Me is hard because it will cost you your life. It demands your life. It means that for many of you, you're going to be put in hard and compromising positions. Difficult ones. And at those times, I'm going to let you know ahead of time. You have opportunity to spare your own life by denying me. But I also want you to know that if you do that, if you try to save your life by denying me, all you have done is prolonged your earthly life. And what you have done also then is lose your eternal soul forever. 
Now, a lot of times we like to think of only false Christians or only fake Christians as those who would ever deny Christ. But that isn't true. Right? That isn't the case. Remember the Apostle Peter. Right? Remember what Peter did. He did not heed the warnings here of our Lord. Right? Was it not Peter who denied the Lord three times? And so this isn't just something that unbelievers or fake Christians or phony Christians do, but real Christians also can deny Christ. But the difference between the real Christian and the phony Christian is like we've seen with Peter, is he repented of his sin once he recognized it, and the next time the opportunity arose to deny Christ, he did not. Right? He professed Christ and was ready to die for Him. Right? That is the difference between the, the false Christian who denies Christ and the real Christian who at times might deny Christ. Now we all probably sit here today and say to ourselves internally that if the opportunity arose where I had to lose my life to proclaim the name of Christ, I most certainly would. I'm sure all of you here today probably say that to yourselves, don't you? But none of you know that for certain. None of you know that for certain. Peter was sitting where you were and Peter said the exact same thing. And what happened? In the moment that his life was threatened, out of fear, what did he do? He denied his Savior. And we see this, brothers and sisters, play out throughout all of church history. People who profess Christ, who swore allegiance to Christ, ready to give it up in order to spare their own physical life. The early church was not a, a popular group to be a part of. By the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, they were stuck in a hard place as Christians. As the Roman Empire demanded that people offer incense to the pagan gods and that they proclaim the emperor as Lord. Now obviously Christians were unable to do that. And so because they refused to do that, what happened is that the authorities took notice of them. They took notice of their disobedience. And as Christians separated themselves from those practices and from other parts of Roman society, what happened? Rumors began to swirl that Christians were atheists, that Christians were cannibals, that Christians practiced incest. And as I thought about this, portion of church history, I thought, man, this bears a lot of resemblance to what we see going on today, doesn't it? Right Today, true Christianity is not a popular group to be amongst. And for us, there are many reasons why we get stuck in hard places, don't we, as well? Right? If we refuse today to, to bow down and to worship the state and what it says, or if we refuse to bow down to the moral standard of this world. What happens? Just like the saints of old, do, do we not get labeled all sorts of names now? Although the names have changed, right? Now it is that we are bigots, we are unloving, we are racist, we are homophobic. Now the early church were called atheists because they didn't worship the pagan gods. And so anyone who didn't worship the pagan gods were called atheists. They were called cannibals because of how they spoke of the of communion, right? They they partook of the the body and blood of Christ. 
They were accused of practicing incest because they called themselves brothers and sisters and they partook of what was called the agape love feast. But these slanderous accusations were believed the more that Christianity did not engage with the practices of the Roman society. And is that not what we see today? Right? They suffer persecution because they would not engage with Roman culture. And today, what happens when we don't engage with the sinful practices of this world? And in fact, when we push against it, what happens to us? Right? We open ourselves likewise up to more persecution. What was worse for them, though, was that they professed Christ as, as their king and as their Messiah. When it was the Roman governors who put him to death for being a, a kingly pretender. And so it was this and all these things that made Christians a threat to the Roman state. And in fact, brothers and sisters, we have a, we have a letter. We have a letter from one of the governors who was sent to the emperor at this time. Pliny the Younger sent this to the emperor Trajan. And he asks in the year 112, we have these Christians who are being brought to us. On what grounds can we punish them? Is it just on the basis of their name, being a Christian? Or do they have to have committed some crime? And the emperor responds to them and says, punish them simply for bearing the name of Christ. And what do you think happened? What do you think happened? They were given an opportunity to denounce Christ, to burn incense, and to declare the emperor king and the emperor their lord, or they were put to death. And for many of them, they did just that. They denied Christ. They renounced their Christian faith. They burned incense to the pagan gods, and they declared that the emperor was their lord. And they were allowed to go free. Right? But for many others... They refused to. Right? They, they would refuse to renounce Christ. And what happens? They suffer death because of it. But what does Jesus tell us in our text today? That if you suffer for His name or for the sake of the Gospel, your life is saved. Those who denied Him have lost their life, although they still live. While those who died have now gained their life, although they died. In fact, when they died, they were never more alive than at that moment. This is something, brothers and sisters, that every one of us here must start to think about and prepare ourselves for. Because although none of us are probably going to die for our Christian faith, you are all constantly being put in places and situations and circumstances where you have the opportunity to either confess Christ by saying something, or deny Christ by saying nothing at all. And so we all must ask ourselves, will we save our lives when we go into work and a group of our co-workers are blaspheming the Lord, but because we want them to like us and we want them to respect us, we sit idly by and we say nothing, which is denying Christ. Will you save your life when a family member, maybe a nephew or a niece, comes out as as gay or comes out as a transgender and they want you to affirm them in this? Will you deny Christ by saying nothing at all for the sake of peace and unity, for the sake of not being cast out and disowned by your family? If the government starts to tell us soon what language we can use, what pronouns we must use before we get thrown in jail, 
Will you deny Christ by going along with what the state has said? Or will you confess Christ by doing what our Lord commands of us? As ministers, we have to start to think about this. When they start telling us what it is we can and cannot preach from the pulpit, or else they're going to shut us down and throw us in jail. Are we just going to stand by and preach the easy passages that the whole world can affirm? Or are we going to stand tall and preach the entire word and counsel of God? These are all questions that each and every one of us must wrestle with. But we should not wait to the, to the moment that you have to make the decision to think about these things. Right? We must be preparing ourselves every day to give up our lives for the Lord. And how do we do this? How do we ready ourselves to give up our lives if Christ so demands it? Well, first is by remembering that Christ lost His life for us. Christ gave Himself for us. How can we then in return refuse to give our lives for Him? Secondly, by counting the glory and honor of Christ in the Gospel as more precious than your own life. That only happens when you're daily thinking about the glorious nature of the Gospel and the glorious character of your Lord. If you don't think about Him often, you're not going to think about Him in those ways when that time comes. And then lastly, brothers and sisters, we prepare ourselves and we ready ourselves to lose our lives to this world for the sake of Christ and the Gospel by detaching ourselves from the world. By detaching ourselves from the world. This doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the things that God has given us in this world. But it means that we are not to so love it that when the time comes that God demands our life, that we are unwilling to do it because we love these things too much. You must detach yourself from them. So when the time comes, you don't care that you lose them. And then we need to constantly, brothers and sisters, be reminding ourselves that if you do lose your life, you are gaining something so much greater. If you lose your life, you are gaining something so much greater. Isn't this what Paul tells us? To live is Christ, but to die is what? To die is gain. Paul understood the value of death. In death, you enter into a greater glory that you could never experience on this earth. Because this world's glory is fading and fleeting and temporal, but the glory that we will experience with Christ in heaven will last forever. What I also think Jesus is highlighting here in verse 35, when He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it is something also more than this. right? Or else it really doesn't mean that much to us here today, does it? Because, as I said, none of us are going to be losing our lives physically for the sake of Christ. But what I also think that he is saying here, if we peel back a layer, is that to be my disciple means giving up your life now. Right? Not living your life for yourself now. Losing yourself now for Christ. Counting yourself already as nothing. Being dead to our old way of living. What does Paul say? No longer it is I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. This is the way that we now Lose our life for Christ, even if you don't physically lose it. 
And it's only when you've reached this point, when you count your life as nothing any longer, that when this time comes, when you are threatened with real persecution and with real suffering, imprisonment or death, that you will readily give yourself up for the Lord. But if you have not lost your life, if you are still living for yourself, you will never be ready to give yourself up for the Lord. This then takes us and leads us into our second point, which is you forfeit your soul when you try to gain the world. You forfeit your soul when you try to gain the world. Jesus says in verse 36 and 37, For what does it profit a man to to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is asking these questions for his audience to answer. He's asking, what is your soul worth to you? Is it not worth more than your temporal existence? Sadly for many, the answer is no. We can look at Esau as a prime example of this, can't we? He was willing to give up his birthright for a lousy meal. That's all it was worth to him. Right? For others, their soul is worth a certain amount of money. Right? Judas is a prime example of this. His soul was worth 30 shekels of silver. But what good did that do him? For others, they're willing to sell their soul for fame. Look at much of Hollywood. People are willing to lose their soul for sexual gratification. People are ready to lose their soul for power. But Jesus is saying to us that the whole world combined given to you is not of equal value to your soul. But people give up their souls and save their lives now because they think in doing so they are going to gain some sort of peace and happiness here on earth. But that peace and happiness that they acquire here on earth is only temporal. And it will end when they die because they get peace and happiness from possessions. But when you die, you cannot take your possessions with you. They do not go with you. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. But this teaching is hard for us, isn't it? Because our lives are so dear to us. These are hard sayings because we love our lives so much. And this is exactly what Satan understands. This is exactly what Satan knows. And this is exactly what then he uses to his advantage. We see this in Job chapter 2. As the Lord allows Satan to sift Job, what does he do? He takes all his his livestock. He, He kills his children. And yet Job will not curse the Lord. And so in verse 4 of chapter 2, Satan goes, Aha, okay, let's up the ante a little. And he says in verse 4, skin for skin then. I say Job won't curse you. How about skin for skin? All that a man has, he will give for his life, Satan says. He understands this. That men are quick to give up their souls for their earthly lives. Right? Oftentimes, it's one thing to see the life of someone else threatened. It's much different when your own life is threatened. Men will quickly give up all for their own life. But Jesus is saying that nothing earthly, including your earthly life, is as precious and valuable as your soul. 
And this should show each one of us the value of your soul. This ought to teach us that the eternal life of the soul is to be sought after and labored over more than anything else in this world. And yet, how many of us can say that we actually do that? That we give the attention to our soul that it deserves and that it requires? You see, your soul is so precious because when you lose your soul, not only do you lose eternal life, but you likewise lose the gracious, loving presence of Christ, which is an incomparable loss. This is why each one of us must be watching our souls closely, guarding them, protecting them, because you must know as you sit here today, there is a battle being had over your souls. And the fact that both God and Satan are after your souls should demonstrate to you their worth and their value. But you must not lose sight of the fact that your soul was made in the image of God and to God your soul belongs. And so next time you are tempted to sin, think to yourselves, what does this profit me? Am I willing to trade this temporal thing for my soul? Because many, every man and woman can, can lose their soul. Right? We all can lose our soul. But no one is able to take it back up again. No one is able to... You can't buy it back. There's not enough money in the world, not enough jewels in the world to buy your soul back once it is lost. Here's where Roman Catholicism is wrong. There is no such thing as purgatory where you can pay some additional penalty for sin to get to heaven. Right? There is no penance after you die. There is no chance for your soul to be saved after death. This is why I say today, for any of you who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, do so today and do so now. Do not push repentance off for the future. Because you might not have an opportunity in the future to repent. You must know that Christ is the only one who may save your soul after it has been forfeited. But that means looking away from yourself. That means looking away from the world and looking to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone can save our souls. And for those of you who have trusted in Christ, who are here today, I exhort you to watch over your souls closely. Guard your souls closely. And you watch over your souls closely by constantly praying for them. Constantly, daily, going to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to to protect you, to guard your hearts. Knowing that Satan will use your sinful hearts to his advantage. He will dangle the things of the world before your eyes in order to get your heart off of Christ and onto the world so that He might cause you to lose your soul. And so pray. Pray that the Lord would keep your soul. That He would preserve you until the day that the Lord returns in glory. You likewise, brothers and sisters, watch over your soul when you come every Sunday and sit under the preached Word. Right? You, you protect and guard your soul and watch over your soul when you attend to the means of grace. You watch over your soul when daily at home you are in your Bibles reading constantly. 
when you are daily thinking about spiritual things and setting the, the glory of God and the excellencies of Christ and the joy of heaven before your mind and before your eyes. Because it's when you neglect to do those things, when you fail to do those things, that when the time comes for you to either confess or deny Christ, you will not be ready to confess Christ and you most certainly will deny Him. And in your denial of Him, you will demonstrate that you do not love Christ, but that you are ashamed of Him. And this leads us then to our third and final point this morning, which is you forfeit your soul when you become ashamed of Christ. You forfeit your soul when you become ashamed of Christ. Jesus says in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of Me in My words, and this adulteress is a adulterous generation, of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Anyone unwilling not only to profess Christ, but the entirety of His Word is ashamed of Christ. You must not only profess Christ, but the entirety of His Word, or else you are ashamed of Christ. It is our Christian duty as His disciples to openly profess Him before all when called upon to do so. It's not enough to just know doctrine. You must be willing to confess it. And isn't it becoming more and more apparent today that many who call themselves Christians are demonstrating shame they have for Christ and not confessing all of God's Word. And why do they do it? Well, it's for the sake of the acceptance of our society, isn't it? How many doctrines are being compromised by Christians in order that they might become friendly with the world? And once the world sees that you are willing to cave on one doctrine, they will make you cave on another and another and another if you want to maintain their acceptance in this world. And then before you know it, it's not even Christianity that you are affirming any longer. Right? This is why, brothers and sisters, we will not cave here. Right? We stand on the Word of God in the full counsel of God. Right? The church can't cave on the fact that as human beings we were made in the image of God and we were made human, uh, male and female. Right? We can't cave on, on marriage as the world would like us to. That marriage is a monogamous relationship between man and woman alone. Right? We aren't going to cave on the exclusivity of Christ. We're not going to cave on creation ex nihilo. We're not going to cave on the historicity of Adam and Eve. We're not going to cave on the doctrine of hell. And yet, what we see is that many are doing that today. And yet, in doing that, what they demonstrate is that they are ashamed of Christ and they are ashamed of His Word. But the true believer boldly stands up and declares with the Apostle Paul, right, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And yet many in Jesus' time were willing to, although they believe in Him, deny Him. In fact, we read in John chapter 12, verse 42, that after Jesus spoke many things, we were told that many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. Many believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it because they did not want to be put out of the synagogue. 
You see, they, they feared the shame and the embarrassment that it would have been brought to them had they confessed Christ openly. Right? They, they feared being cast out of society, being cast out of their synagogue, when instead they should have felt a greater sense of fear for the shame and the embarrassment that Christ will have for them because of their denial of Him. Right? They feared man more than they feared God. But what does Jesus call them? An adulterous and sinful generation. Here, particularly in our text, He's speaking to the, to the Israelites. Right? He's saying, you are my chosen people and yet you have abandoned me. For sin and gross sin is that without any repentance. Right? The Jews took pride in being God's chosen nation. They took pride in being Abraham's descendants. But they demonstrated in their denial of Christ that they were not truly the descendants of Abraham. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Then not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Right? This is what Jesus affirms in John 8, 39. When the Jews whom He was speaking to were denying Him. And He says, You are of your father the devil. Because Abraham would have believed. And because of the shame that they had and they felt over Christ and His message, He says when He returns in all His glory, He will have that same shame for them. Which means what? When He returns, He will not acknowledge them any longer as His people. He will deny them as they have denied Him. And yet at the same time, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' words here, not only is He giving us caution and warning, but He is also comforting us. And He is also encouraging us telling us that He will once again come in glory. And so it teaches us to look forward to the return of Christ where we will be transformed into a glorious body just like Christ's. Right? It teaches us to not be embarrassed or fear that the Son of Man had to die because the Son of Man will return once again. Although this time when He returns, it will not be in the form of a lowly servant. This time when He returns, it will be as the conquering King. And he tells them, the apostles in the crowd likewise, that I will confirm this to you shortly. I will demonstrate the veracity of what I am saying. As we see in verse, chapter 9 of verse 1 when he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. He tells them it will not be long before they see His glorious power in a new and fresh way. Jesus understands that what He has just finished telling them was a very hard teaching. And so He, he, he softens that teaching here with verse 1 of chapter 9, promising them that soon He will show to them His glory. And shouldn't that likewise, brothers and sisters, soften these hard sayings for us as well? Soon we will see Christ in all His glory when He returns. And isn't that worth more than anything that this world has to offer? Isn't Christ in His glory and His name and the Gospel more important to us than anything else that the world can give to us? Is Christ honor and glory dying for Christ's name and Gospel is that not more satisfying to our souls than gaining the entire world? You see, Jesus is telling us that we must suffer many things for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. 
But as believers, as His disciples, we ought to do so cheerfully, knowing that one day Christ will return. And when He returns, we will be clothed in His honor and draped in His glory. Brothers and sisters, please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the truthfulness of Your Word. We thank You for Your life-giving Word, that these are words that nourish and strengthen the saints. We pray, Father, for boldness and courage to live in this present evil age. We pray for boldness and courage that we would speak up when opportunity called in defense of the name of Christ in the Gospel. We pray, Father, for the opportunity to do such. We pray, Father, that if it is Your will that You would ready and prepare us to lose our earthly lives for the name of Christ and for the Gospel's sake. And yet, Father, we know apart from the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we would never do this. And so, Father, we pray that You would be granting to us a greater measure of Your grace each day, that You would be teaching us more and more about what it means to be Your disciple each day, that You would be revealing to us more and more of the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that You would be causing us to hate the things of this world more and more and to seek and to set our minds upon that, those things which are in heaven. And so, Father, we come before You this morning and we ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.